You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Well, our passage today is Revelation chapter 12. It's the Christmas story, not the Easter story. We are off one. Um, And the first six verses describe St. John's Christmas story. I'll read that passage and pray, and then we'll get started. Listen carefully. This is God's word. A great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of twelve stars on her head. And she was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his heads. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. And the dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God, where she might be taken care of for 1260 days. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord God, with your word open, we ask for insight, for understanding, through the power of the Holy Spirit, that the gospel of Christ might be truly understood. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray together. Amen. Amen. Well, six simple verses. And if you get something of the understanding of the cycle of the book of Revelation, we see this as kind of a, a break in the action. John has introduced himself and Christ in chapter 1. Chapters 2 and 3, he addresses the seven churches. 4 and 5 is a throne room vision of the worship of God in heaven. And then he begins these, uh, these seven seals, seven trumpets, seven seals, And now we're waiting for seven bowls to finish it off. As I've said, there's seven descriptions of the end in the book of Revelation. We've been to three of them so far, where it seems cataclysmic enough, apocalyptic enough for it to all be over with. But then John basically says, well, it's not done yet. The end of the end hasn't arrived. Here it's as if he's backing up and giving us now a understanding and an insight into salvation history with this description of the woman and the dragon and the child. And he's drawing on that whole, in six verses, he's drawing on the whole scope, as it were, of salvation history. This is St. John's Christmas message. You know, in the Gospel of John, we don't have, as it were, a Christmas uh, narrative. We do in Luke, and we do in Matthew. 
And both of those are a lot rougher and more historic and more political and more militaristic than our Advent worship would indicate. I don't know if you noticed, if you've come just from the, uh, from the service, if you notice carefully, there is a lot of violence in the hymns we sing and in the texts we read. In a way, that doesn't necessarily come through. Uh, but if we stopped the hymn and stopped the text and we drew attention to the violence of the rhetoric and the action that is taking place, we might have a very different impression. Well, John gives us that. John opens it up in such a way that you cannot domesticate this truth. Um, it doesn't clean up well. It's a strong word. Let's just uh, let's run through the passage and then back up uh, so that we're understanding what we're reading. A great sign appeared in heaven. Now, keep in mind who's writing this. The Apostle John. And the structure of the Gospel of John is built around, the Gospel of John is built around seven signs. Remember the wedding feast in Cana of Galilee? And remember what John says, this is the first of the signs? And then there's going to be the official son, the paralytic in Bethsaida, the feeding of the 5,000, the walking on the water, the healing of the blind man, and the raising of Lazarus, and all of these are signs. Signs that the fulfillment, the, the messianic promises are being fulfilled in Jesus is the one who's come, and that's the sign pointing. So John uses this same language. It's consistent that the apostle who writes the, first, uh, the fourth gospel is now writing in the use of signs. And a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of twelve stars on her head. The twelve stars of Jacob. Clothed with the sun, which points us back to the very first vision of Christ in chapter 1. And she's pregnant and cries out in pain. This woman that's described here is Eve, it's Mary, it's the daughters of Zion, it's the bride of Christ. In an image, John is capturing the people of God. And it's in an image that points to the incarnation and the word being made flesh and dwelling among us. All of that's contained in this image of the woman, clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet, the 12 stars of Jacob around her head, and she's pregnant and she cries out in pain and she's about to give birth. The second sign, described in verse 3, appears in heaven an enormous red dragon. And this red dragon is going to be described in, in six ways. Uh, seven heads, ten horns, seven crowns. All of that to say is this is the most powerful being that you can describe, minus God. 
Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky, flung, flung them to the earth, and the dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child at the moment he was born. That's the second sign. You don't literally have a woman like this. She stands for something. That's why she's a sign. She stands for the people of God. You don't really have literally a dragon like this. The dragon stands for something. The dragon stands for Satan, for the devil, for all that is antithetical to the way of God. And that dragon is positioned right before the child to devour the child. You have Satan there in Herod's Gestapo raid on Bethlehem, killing some estimated 20 to 40 children, boys, under two. There is the work of evil that enters into that Advent picture. Uh, Satan is there at the, in the wilderness when he tempts Jesus with, bow before me and you'll receive all the kingdoms of the world. He's there when they pick up stones to stone Jesus because he has equated himself with the Father. He's there in Judas's betrayal. And he's there at the cross. This dragon symbolizing the devil stands ready to devour the child. Now, verse 5 is interesting. She gave birth to a son, not a sign. But a son. You have two metaphoric figurative expressions that capture a great deal of biblical salvation history. But now you have this son who is literal, a child who is born, the word that was made flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. Do you know where that expression will rule all the nations with an iron scepter comes from? It's a quote from Psalm 2, verse 9. You know, the first sign, the first psalm dealing with, blessed is the one who delights in the word of God. And Psalm 2, uh, a psalm that's political and social and re reflects on the fact that uh, the Lord has given the Son total reign. That quote comes from Psalm 2, verse 9. He'll rule all the nations with an iron scepter. Here, John is not being figurative. But this ultimate rule is that which this child will achieve. And, for example, Isaiah, where Isaiah 9 says, A child is born, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And you'll call him Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. We've jumped from the incarnation to the ascension in the space of a sentence. That's how much John is encompassing here. So the child is snatched up, and then the woman, and who's the woman? Well, it's the people of God. It's the body of Christ. It's the bride of Christ. She's on the run. She's in the wilderness. 
The woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1260 days or 42 months or a time, times, and a half a time. John's way of expressing half of perfection in a three and a half year period uh, in which the church is under pressure and persecuted and suffering. Now, verse 7 begins the Easter story, and I'll pick that up. We'll pick that up, Lord willing, in January. So there's a run-through. Now let me back up. Um, And if I were probably preaching a message, this is where I would begin. There is a theatrical group in San Diego that is Christian-based and does a wonderful job of exploring story for the sake of the gospel. They're called the Lambs Players, and they have a theater on Coronado and are well supported by the Christian community throughout the larger San Diego area. Uh, There was an oncologist in our church, a wonderful pastoral oncologist, who invited Virginia and I every year to go and uh, uh, to one of the performances. And the performances always had a gospel angle. They used the power of story in order to communicate the truth of God. This is what John is doing here. He's using the power of story. If you feel you've got it down pat, John's a great way to uh, kind of provoke uh, that uh, feeling of, uh, of I've got it all down pat and, and invoke, I think, a sense of the wonder of God at work in ways that are beyond our framing and formula. C.S. Lewis wrote, this is number one on your study guide, history is a story with a well-defined plot, pivoted on creation, fall, redemption, and judgment. It is indeed the divine revelation par excellence, the revelation which includes all other revelations. Now, you have to ask yourself, do you believe that? Do you believe that there is this meta-narrative, this grand story that is rooted in creation, fall, redemption, and judgment? Because John's Christmas story is based on that understanding. Uh, Number two, he's thoroughly steeped in Old Testament images, like the 12 stars representing the 12 tribes. He draws on the pagan tradition for dramatic effect. And this is where it's interesting because John is taking popular mythology, dragons, threatening a child, along with Old Testament understanding and image. Bachmuller is a, a British professor and he's written The Climax of Prophecy. I put it in really small print there, sorry. Um, Uh, I can read it, but I won't be able to read it for long. Um, Apollo was well known throughout the cities of Asia. You see where I'm reading, if you can, but you can just also listen. And the popularity of the story of Apollo's birth and defeat of Python is well attested to by coins in the area. In a form, this story, which was current by John's time, the dragon threatens and pursues Apollo's mother, Leto, at the time of the birth and later slain by the god. 
Because of the dragon's connection with Apollo's birth, the case for supposing that Revelation 12, 1 through 4 was deliberately intended to recall the story seems a good one. The best of many suggestions of specific myths supposed to underline this chapter. The illusion is then partly an artistic device, identifying the dragon as the enemy whom the divine child will eventually slay. John is basing on a story within the culture of a dragon that's about to uh, consume Apollo's, uh, Apollo's child um, and then is defeated. So I would describe that in number three. Uh, John's congreg uh, congregations knew the story of the great dragon Python when Python sought to kill Leto, who was pregnant with Zeus's child. Poseidon did hid Leto on an island until she gave birth to Apollo. And only f four days later, Apollo was able to defeat the dragon. Vancouver pastor Daryl Johnson, who's written a really good book on Revelation, uh, writes this, second column, second paragraph. Every culture in every corner of the globe has myths about humanity's struggle for peace. Every culture in every place has its Star Wars. Pluralism is nothing new. The gospel has always had to compete for people's hearts and minds. Every culture had its meta-narrative, its deep story, which seeks to make sense of life. The story or the worldview is the set of glasses through which a culture looks at the world. And this may be one of the big things that has changed in our culture is that the Christian meta-narrative is no longer the meta-narrative. Uh, and it competes with other understandings of the grand narrative for, uh, for society. I think we've covered four and five and six. If you turn the page, the description of the enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its head, number seven. And like the first sign, this second sign invokes a range of biblical references. John has in view the crafty serpent in the garden who deceived Eve into thinking that God lied to elevate himself. The great red dragon is described in the Psalms as a multi-headed leviathan. Isaiah promised that the Lord would slay the great sea monster, Leviathan, the gliding serpent with its sword. Based on scripture, the metaphor of the dragon paints a graphic picture of evil. And eight, I just described the various ways that this serpent and snake imagery was iconic in the culture in which John's writing. Three of the main cults, used the snake as their icon, their logo. And in a way, John is using this as a logo for evil. This stands over and against the woman and the child. Number nine, the third focus in John's praying imagination is not a sign like the woman or the dragon, but a person. We're not going to find a literal woman's clo woman clothed with the sun. We're not going to find a literal dragon with seven heads and ten horns. But we are going to find the male child a son. A single line from Psalm 2 identifies this child. He will rule the nations with an iron scepter. The line is repeated twice, once here and then again in Revelation 19. 
This child is none other than the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, the triumphant Lamb who was slain, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Isaiah's lyrics, as I already quoted, should uh, ring in our ears. So number 10, John's unique vision of the nativity intersects with real history in the birth of the child at Bethlehem. And quoting from Luke 1, the right column, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. I guess a subtext that one could draw attention to in looking at this passage is that Jesus and Christian spirituality is not an aspect of our lives, but it is to be the totality of our lives. We are really talking about being under a king, the king of kings and the lord of lords, who reigns and rules. And we submit to that rule and reign not just in our religious aspect of life, but in the totality of life. Matthew's Gospel does make it seem, to use C.S. Lewis's language, that this is God's D-Day invasion in the coming of Christ. And that corresponds really well, I think, with John's description here. Number 11, John impresses upon us the real meaning of Christmas. God defeats the enormous red dragon with a baby who is Christ the Lord. John's nativity scene gives us the meaning of the manger. From the moment the child is born, the devil is out to get that child. And I itemize those aspects in which we can think of the devil specifically trying to get at this child. Number 12, the Apostle John places the incarnation and the ascension of Christ side by side. One moment the woman gives birth, and the next moment her child is snatched up to God and to his throne. And remember, this spiraling intensity within the book of Revelation means that one moment we're on earth and the next moment we're in heaven. We never lose the perspective of the view from the throne. And the view from the throne never loses the perspective of the great difficulty that's happening on earth. Here, incarnation and ascension are side by side, and we are in that wilderness experience waiting for the coming of Christ. Number 13, the woman who represents the people of God is on the run. She has to flee into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1260 days. Now here again, then, the church kind of reenacts what the Israelites experienced in the wilderness. And God provided for them and preserved them, just as God provides for and preserves the church today. During this period of tribulation that lasts from Christ's ascension to his return, the followers of the Lamb are referred to as, and here's all the different names, just like there are different names for Satan and evil and the devil. The church is referred to as the Holy City, 
the two witnesses, which we talked about last week, the woman and God's people, and each reference is to the same persecuted community of believers who are protected and nurtured by God in the wilderness for what is supposed to be a relatively brief and sovereignly appointed time. You and I may look at that and say, well, more than 2,000 years has passed. That seems like a long waiting period to be encompassed by, what, the three and a half years. And I always quote in response to that kind of thinking, to myself anyways, that the Lord is patient, not willing that any should uh, be separated from him. From 2 Peter 5.8. Number 14, this time is represented symbolically in several ways. John consistently draws these out, 42 months, 1260 days, a time, times, and a half a time, various ways of saying the same truth, as it were. Each reference is to three and a half years of persecution, a symbolic duration that cuts perfection seven years in half. John did not pull the number out of thin air. We mentioned this last week. Moses recorded 42 stages of breaking camp as the Israelites moved across the wilderness. Just interesting. 42 times they, they set up camp and they tore it down and started journeying. 42 times. The second uh, in, uh, incident of this, during the days of Elijah, it didn't rain for three and a half years. The third, Matthew framed his genealogy in 42 generations from Abraham to Jesus in three sets of 14. Interesting, three sets of 14, but the third set lacks one generation's 13. That enduring generation of the church is what people feel Matthew is symbolizing with that. But the chief source of John's symbolic number is the prophecy of Daniel, who described a three and a half year period of persecution. A fourth and final beast, this is in Daniel, will speak against the Most High and oppress his holy people and try to change the set times and the laws, and the holy people will be delivered into his hands for a time, times, and half a time. Two, uh, well, let's say three. I've put three headings here, three things we can go away with in this discussion. One is the conviction and the confession of this as our meta-narrative. I like to say everybody has a story, but only one story redeems our story. Everybody has a story, but only one story redeems our story. So this narrative, you have to, we have to ask ourselves, what relationship does our narrative have, our story have, to this story? Is this our primary history? that is wrapped up in incarnation, ascension, consummation, and judgment? Is that the, the movement and the frame of how we see life and our story? We live in a postmodern world, and the philosopher uh, Jean-Francois Lyotard, yep, his name is Lyotard, is probably one of the most famous philosophers for debunking the notion of a meta-narrative. 
He took on the Enlightenment. He took on Marxist social class divisions. He took on Freud in his biological sort of uh, way, uh, therapeutic way of looking at life. And he saw all of those, interestingly enough, as too theological. In other words, he saw philosophy still living off of the residual of the Christian meta narrative, coming up with, and in the case of enlightenment, of a kind of social progressive advancement, which fits really well with kind of an evolutionary understanding of a meta narrative. And then he looked at Marxists in the social class, economic, philosophical kind of conflict. And uh, he, re he debunked all of these as sufficient meta-narratives for describing what we really experience. Uh, now, he was criticized as having his own meta-narrative opposed to a meta-narrative. Uh, that was one of the philosophical reactions to uh, Leotard. And many people today, you know, I, I think live in such a way as to um, resist any kind of story, overarching, grand narrative story, other than their own little story. And life is where my little story is. In the immediacy of the moment, living in the now, and resisting any kind of imposition of an overarching story. That may be one reason why in the 21st century the personal memoir is so popular. Because we identify with each person's sort of individual story or the potential for identification is found there. Our confessional belief and conviction, our worldview, our way of looking at life is based on this grand narrative. That God indeed is real. He has created. History has set a course that he is sovereign over. That the incarnation is genuine. And that the cross and the resurrection and the ascension are significant, pivotal points in our history. My story. Everybody has a story, but only one story redeems our story. Now, in, composite, in opposite to that, the sentimental story, and this is where theology kind of was greatly influenced by this kind of po most postmodern impulse. Number 16, your second column there, the influential 19th century German theologian Frederick Schleiermacher, who's kind of known as the father of modern liberalism, found in the Christmas story a source of inspiration for maternal love and for the triumph of human nature. That's what Christmas is all about. Maternal love and the triumph of human nature. Schleiermacher believed that Christmas evoked strong sentiments of joy and wonder which elevated humanity. He contended that whether or not Christ's birth actually took place was no longer at the heart of the story. Schleiermacher is arguing that we don't have to have a real incarnation. We don't really have to have the doctrine of sin and redemption. Uh, we're not talking about a literal death here of an atoning sacrifice for sin. 
What matters is the speechless joy over the unspeakable object. It's the warmth you feel in an Advent service. It's the sentiment. It's the idea of sort of in some ways you're touching the human character and the human drama in significant ways. For Schleiermacher, church music could dispense not with singing, but with definite words. You don't need the words. And you don't need the truths that the words talk about. But boy, you wouldn't want to give up Christmas. And of course, that should really uh, sober everyone here at the Advent. Because it's very easy to sit there and appreciate what is being sung and played for sentimental reasons. That it touches a core in you, emotively. And that's what's valuable, valuable about it, rather than touching at your core theologically that you are under this Lord. And he really is real. And he is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And this is our real history. So sentimentality meets salvation. And, uh, you know, I have uh, pastoring for 14 years in San Diego and being actually smashed out on Christmas Eve with way more people than could possibly fit in the building. And knowing that side by side in the pew were individuals who bowed the knee to Christ as Lord, sitting next to people who were there for the ambiance, who were there for the ethos, who were there for the mood, who were there for the sentiment. The Schleiermachery versus what well, we could say Bart, because Bart hated Schleiermacher for this very reason. And they, these two sit side by side in the same pew. And you almost feel like say, stopping everything, total silence, and saying, will you talk to the person next to you about the reality of what we are now experiencing? This isn't a bunch of sentiment. As valuable as sentiment can be, this is a question of truth and the whole life and death and heaven and hell are resting on this. And that's where we get to the deep story. Uh, and uh, when I wrote about the deep story, uh, people weren't talking about the deep state. <laughs> I, 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 I cringe if we're going to in any way associate the deep story with deep state. It's not that at all. Over against all other grand narratives and local narratives, the Apostle John proclaimed that Christ, the Christ story, is the very revelation of God. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. Amen. Now to him who is able to keep us from falling and to present us before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God our Savior be glory and majesty, power and authority, through Jesus Christ our Lord, now and forever. Amen. Amen. 
You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.